Welcome back. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host Chris Kay, and it's time for another mind-blowing episode of Debating Metal. This week we have changed things up a little bit. We're doing a head-to-head, but this time it's one band's album versus another band's album. And for our first truly head-to-head battle, we're pitting Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell against Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz. Both albums came out in 1980, just a mere five months apart. While both albums were essentially comebacks for each artist and band, Kenneth and I will offer our opinions on each album, and at the end we'll determine which one we think is the better of the two releases. We've also got another round of Rusty Metal and Freshly Forged coming up in a bit. But before we get to that, reminder, if you enjoy the show and you want to hear some more, click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and get the show delivered to your favorite device each and every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions. So if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're also now on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and ring that YouTube bell to be alerted each week when we drop a new episode. Kenneth, what's Rusty Metal this week? All right. So we're going to keep in in kind of uh, the same theme as what we're going on with, with uh, the, the two albums we're going to review, but it's kind of like a tertiary kind of side thing. It is Quiet Riot with Metal Health, the 1983 album from the band. Uh, it was released on Pasha Records, it was produced by Spencer Proffer, and it was recorded at Pasha Music House in North Hollywood, California. This is the band's official third release, the first two releases coming from Japan, Quiet Riot 1 and Quiet Riot 2, uh, but it's the first since they reformed in 1982. Uh, this, the album contains Metal Health, Slick Black Cadillac, Don't Want to Let You Go, and The Smash, Come On Feel the Noise, this, the cover of the Slade song. Now, Kevin Dubrow didn't want to record Come On, Feel the Noise, but you know, after much coercing, he finally gave in, and as you can see, the rest is history. Uh, in later reissues, the title of the, uh, the single, Metal Health, was changed to add Bang Your Head, because basically that's how everybody knew it, because that was the main part of the chorus. Um, the album also contains the song Thunderbird, which was a tribute to... Uh, Kevin's friend Randy Rhodes but oddly enough the song was written before Rhodes died by Kevin as sort of a kind of like a goodbye for him joining the Aussie band but later after he passed away he changed he added a final verse as a tribute to Randy the album reached number one in November of 1983 replacing the police's synchronicity album and the album has sold over 10 million copies worldwide. So it is still available. You can stream it. You can buy it. Uh, you can probably find a vinyl somewhere. I have the original vinyl that came out back in the day. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a 180-gram reissue out there that's that's uh, floating around town. But it's a great album. I mean, not a lot of people really give it the respect it deserves. It's got some killer songs on it. Um, uh, some other songs that are on it are Love's a Bitch, um, Let's Get Crazy, Run for Cover, and Breathless. I mean, those are good songs. The album is great overall. So if you haven't heard it in a while, give it another listen. You're sh- I'm sure you're going to like it because it's a really kick-ass album. Very good. I do like that album. To me, it's it's probably their best um, I've, I've never been like a massive fan of them, but, um, that was, it's, it's one of those that like the band's coming, um, you know, out of, out of really not doing much. This is a very different take on the band than their first two albums. And it's kind of that raw hungry album we always talk about. 
So it's got a lot of uh, really good stuff on it that, that I think represents them well as a whole. All right, this week for my Freshly Forged pick, it's something a little bit dated, but at the same time, it's the first commercial release of this uh, this album. And this is the Unplugged in Boston release from Megadeth. This was originally recorded in 2001. Um, it is a pretty rare, you know, like desirable album from the, the fan base and this is the first time it's ever actually been released commercially so um, it's really cool to listen to the band in a different aspect and um, you know hear them unplugged which is always kind of a testament of of some of the talent that they have um, to hear them playing on on acoustic instruments adds a, a really strong dynamic to the band where it shows that they're not just reliant on the technology um so listening to this i was really impressed i listened to the whole thing uh, today um you can buy it online in a variety of pla uh, places um i did not find it streaming uh per se but there are ways to find it i'm sure and um <clears throat> definitely check this one out um uh, this was released right after The World Needs a Hero, which I know you're a big fan of. It's a great album. Um, yeah, so so it's got a, lo a large variety of, of their entire catalog and shows that, you know, there wasn't, they didn't, don't just play soft songs. They've got Holy Wars, Punishment Due on here. Um, it's got Trust, which I've, I've always been a fan of, Moto Psycho, Symphony of Destruction, and man, it's just so good. So definitely check this one out. Um, I, I kind of picked it also because we just saw Megadeth live in concert, and uh, it was really good. It, they were on a co-headline uh, show with Lamb of God, if you're not familiar with what's going on right now. Um, if you're a big if Lamb of God fan, uh, they were they were really good. I've never been as much of a fan, but I enjoyed them seeing them live. But when it got to Megadeth, I was really blown away with how good they sound with the current lineup. Uh, Dirk Verburen sounds amazing on drums, and that was really what kind of caught my attention. Um, James Lomenzo was fitting right in, and Kiko, um, the first time I saw them when he first joined the band, I, I watched them on the Dystopia tour. Uh, I was surprised he didn't play as many leads back then, but now he's playing a good ma amount along with Dave, and they're really in sync, and you can see there's there's a lot of chemistry there, and I really enjoyed it. So this is th that's you know what's going on now, but going back and listening to this you know moment in time from 2001 is pretty cool too. Going going back to what you were saying about Kiko, um, what I notice is that the the one thing I really like about Kiko is that he brings a little bit of like a a relaxed atmosphere to the band on stage. You know, yes, we all know absolutely. how uptight Dave can can be, and and there's always that sense of him, you know, ready to snap <laughs> type of feel. Even though he's having a good time, and most of the time I've seen him, he's always been very uh, pleasant. But you you always know that something can go wrong, and he can you know get get ornery. But Kiko brings this air of of looseness and this air of of of. Um, it was a good. The good word was chemistry is used, but this this air of 
this vibe that that there's they're just enjoying themselves and i re- i really think i think he's a good influence on dave I yeah think, i think they get along really well everything i've seen behind the scenes with them together they it's like it's a good time you know it's 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 a different uh vibe than it's been in the past yeah i, I can also i can just tell like i've you know i've followed megadeth over the years and just seeing you know chris broderick or or the the other drover brother it, it's it's uh, and even Marty, there's there's just this thing that Kiko brings to the table that is just refreshing for Dave, and I think it makes him feel or makes him act a lot less uh, ornery, if you want to put it that way, and much <laughs> more relaxed, to me at least. That's what I noticed. Yes. I agree. I, I really enjoyed the show, even though it was only an hour, and I wish it was a whole nother hour, but... Um, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Yep. And in regards to the to your um, Freshly Forged, I am totally interested in listening to this, and I just looked it up, and it is on Spotify. So okay. I want, gotcha. I'm definitely going to listen to it as soon as I can tomorrow morning. Yeah, I didn't see it on YouTube Music. I, there was there was a link to it that somebody posted on YouTube. So if you if you're familiar with YouTube Music, if you use it, um, you you know that in the searches, it not just finds. Uh, not only finds um, the actual MP3s, but it will find links to YouTube videos as well. And that was kind of the way I found it. So I'm not sure the validity of that, um, but that's that's how it came up on my list today. Hmm. Okay, cool. All right. Well, today's topic is we've, we've changed the format of the head-to-head just a little bit, and we're actually putting one band or one artist up against another band or artist. And this week it's Black Sabbath versus Ozzy Osbourne, Heaven and Hell versus Blizzard of Oz. I really think this is an excellent way to start off this series or this type of head-to-head that we're doing, that we're going to do from now on. Because, yeah, we did some, you know, head-to-head battles. Most recently we did um, Children of Bottom. And right before that, just a couple weeks ago, we did... Um, Ozzy's Bark at the Moon versus The Ultimate Sin. We purposely didn't go Blizzard of Oz and Diary of Madman because those have been gone over a million times. But very seldom do you see two bands go head to head, you know, on, on any of these podcasts or any of these video casts or any of these YouTube videos. It's it's just one of these things where there's not a lot of, of those kinds of, you know, uh, battles brewing out in the background. So I think this is a really cool way to start it off. We're going to try and come up with a lot of cool topics in the future as far as these head-to-heads are concerned. But Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell versus Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. Um, to start off Black Sabbath, um, Heaven and Hell was released in April of 1980. It was produced by Martin Birch. It was recorded at Criteria Studios in Miami, Florida, and Ferber Studios in Paris, France. It was released on Warner Brothers in the U.S. and Vertigo Records outside of the U.S. Um, This is your baby. Let's go. Start it off. All right. To start things off with the first track, Neon Nights, uh, it's already not just a heavier sound for Sabbath, uh, but also for Dio. I mean, Dio's coming off of working with Rainbow. Um, he's got some experience working in more of a rock sound than he previous, previously did with his band Elf. So he's he's worked with uh, Richie Blackmore, and now he's moving on. He's working with uh, Tony Iommi. And this is a pivotal moment in their history. You know, this is not just a comeback 
uh, for Sabbath to prove, you know, that they they can still subsist without Ozzy. But they've also come off of two weaker albums. The last two albums, um, Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die, there's some okay moments on them, but as a whole, they're they're not very good albums, and that's that's following a very long career, uh, not particularly long, but multiple album career where they've had album after album that's just great from beginning to end, and then they've they've hit a low point. So to hear this this moment when the band is maybe at their their weakest, kind of floundering. Um, to take off in with such a kick-ass track, this is a great way to start things off. Um, the riff is just a lot of fun. Um, it, it's it's a memorable opener and it's heavy. This is this is different. Like this is this is to me the first metal album that Black Sabbath has put out. I agree. This is where Black Sabbath said. If you're going to call us heavy metal, if you're going to say that we're the the founders of heavy metal, we're going to go ahead and take the the reign. We're going to sit on the throne because this album or this song especially is just it just comes out, it tells you right off, you know, right off the bat, we're back. This is us now. We're going to kick your ass. Um there there was no giving an inch on this song whatsoever. And I, I I just love it. Just comes right out the gate, boom! Just storming. It's not. There's no quiet intro. There's no fade in. It is just like boom, right in your face. And I love that. That is a way to make a statement. And they really, really made the statement on that one. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a good way to put it. Like it it starts off right the bat, right off the bat. There's no intro, nothing. It's just just bam. Yeah, that's it's so good. All right, that takes us into the second track, which is Children of the Sea. Uh, this is the first song that the band worked on together. Um, Geezer had actually left the band. So that so essentially, they brought Ronnie in, then Geezer left, and um, it was just a three-piece. So they started working on some music. I think that was one of those moments where, oh my God, like not only have we lost our, our singer... But we've lost our songwriter and our or our lyricist, I should say, and our our bass player, who's amazing. This is this is a a another pivotal moment. Like not only um, the album, but now starting to write the music and and not having all those pieces from before. Um, so Ronnie actually doubled as bassist when writing this song, and it was really just the three of them together putting this to together as a, as a as a track and um i couldn't be more happy with it uh, children of the sea i think is one of sabbath's strongest songs in general um i think we've talked about that in in previous episodes where um we, i think specifically we, we mentioned it during our uh, greatest hits where we were kind of deciding what to go on there and children of the sea is just one of those that i think it represents specifically on this album um that the band was still here and still strong but this was something kind of under the radar because there's no way fans would have known at the time that this is what's going on um you know bands try to project an image etc this is more information that came out later um but it but really knowing now kind of the circumstances i think it's really important in their history 
Um, what's interesting is the bass line is so incredibly heavy and strong on this so- in this particular song, and I wonder, um, you know, of course Geezer doesn't have any writing credits on this album, but did he add when he came back to the band to record? Did he add some of that flavor of his to the to the songs because? it definitely does have something interesting and a little different than what had come before for the band. And um, I wonder exactly, and we'll talk about that more as we go along, um, exactly what his contributions were. Well, um, just recently they had done the reissues of uh, Heaven and Hell and the Mob Rules. And they... Mm -hmm. uh, so Eddie Trunk had spoken individually to each of the players involved, except for Ozzy. Um, he talked to Tony, he talked to, to Geezer, and he even talked to Bill. Um, and, and I think he also talked to uh, Finney Appice, who basically ended up on the tour. And one of the things that, they, uh, that Geezer was saying is that, you know, he left the band because he was going through a divorce. In mm-hmm. his mind, he was going to return to the band. But he left the band in such a, a, a frazzle state, uh, personally, that the band had no idea if he was going to be coming back or not. So yes. even though his intention was to come back, he didn't know if he was coming back or not. The band didn't know if he was coming back or not. The dude's fried because he's going through this divorce. He's in the United States. Now he's got to go back to England. He's doing, you know, whatever is going on in his life is just is unraveling. Um, so yeah, Ronnie and I believe it was also the keyboard player, um, who worked on the bass lines and when, when Jeff didn't come in until later. So this, on this particular track, it was just a three piece. So, um, when, according to geezer, when he came back, he did add some touches from what I, from what I gather. Um, but I don't. Th- it, it's really weird because yet you are absolutely correct. The bass lines, although in previous Sabbath albums with Ozzy, you know, Geezer's very distinctive playing style is very prevalent. This one was very different, and it was very yes. you know the the production on this is, is second to none um, on both of these albums that we're going to talk about. Martin Birch, who produced this. Um, you know, everyone knows him for for doing Deep Purple and for doing Iron Maiden, especially Iron Maiden. And his, I mean, what's amazing about this is that there are f- there are f- four instruments on this album, and and then Ronnie and his vocals. So you can call that a fifth instrument. There's keyboards, drums, bass, and guitar. Right, each one. And, and and you add Ronnie's vocals in there. Each of the five different tracks are so distinctly separate and crystal clear. It's amazing. And the, mm-hmm. the bass line on Children of the Sea is so right in your face, but yet it's not obnoxious because... No, it's it's just separate. Like that, yeah. that's... And it's something I'll mention later on when talking about this, but... But it is, it's so distinct. And I, and I think that's what, what I love. Like a lot of times you can't tell that the rhythm sections, the instruments are their own instruments. 
they just sound like part of the whole. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This, they do sound like part of the whole as in they're all working together, but you can also make out everything everybody is doing. And it's funny because it's very, it, it, that's prevalent throughout the whole album. And it is. And to think that, that Geezer wasn't there for most of it is amazing because of how much separation and how much style there is to the bass playing throughout the whole album. That's that's a really cool thing. So that that's a testament to Geezer's playing and what they what they ended up recording in the production of the album because it's just absolutely amazing the, the production of this album. Oh, for sure. Track three is Lady Evil. Uh, former Rainbow bassist Craig Gruber worked on a lot of this early material, and while not credited, uh, he has been attributed as saying that he reached a suitable financial settlement and. On that account, like he, so basically he he says he had a lot to do with writing, um, but we don't know how much. You know, it me it leads us to believe that maybe he wrote a lot of the bass parts on here, and then there's also some hints in later interviews that he actually recorded some of the music. So maybe that's an explanation of why the bass sounds so different. We don't really know. Um, in, in pretty much any, it, you know, any information you find online says that Geezer recorded the music. And I, at this point, this far along in the careers, I doubt that there's anything different than that. Especially since there's been further interviews with Craig and it's, you know, it's mentioned that his, his uh, contribution to this album is more of a writing aspect. So, the, while the song's a lot slower, it's really punchy and has a great solo. Um, Tony definitely stepped it up on the solos on this album, and this is a, a really a, a strong start to that. Um, having been just a riff master, this really adds a new dimension to his playing. You know, one thing about Black Sabbath is they have really, really memorable riffs. If you go back through all the albums, you can find these riffs that just stick in your head. And this adds something new because he really started to get into solos and a little bit of shredding here. And <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, Tony definitely played a lot different on this album than he had in the past. And you're right, when, when Sabbath was known for riffs the heaviness behind it the consistent sound because they're playing over the riff uh, or or singing over the riff and and essentially the you know when you look at and you think about sabbath songs there's not really a lot in terms of a chorus for, for a lot of their songs paranoid doesn't have a chorus war pigs doesn't have a chorus you know there's there's certain things that are repeated but they're not necessarily a chorus um you know, uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, you know, just weird things. And that was their style. But in this, this album is almost like traditional songwriting in a hard rock style. And that was a lot to do with Ronnie, obviously. But it also opened up Tony to be different, to feel different. And it basically, I'm, I'm for, for the way it seems to me is it, it seemed like he was just so refreshed to be able to do that and, and to start new. But at the same time, when you think about the, 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 uh, 
what they what they went through to make this album because of all the stuff you went from having a full band just a year ago to you lost your singer, you lost your bass player. Uh, there's, you know, your, your drummer is teetering on, on never coming back again. I mean, it was, it was almost Tony for, for a minute, you know, and yeah. Ronnie's really the one that held it all together for a while for him. So this song, however, lady evil, like you said, very punchy. It's got this really killer driving bass line in it. So I could see that whole thing with the, with Gruber, um, Gruber, right? You said, mm-hmm. right? Craig Gruber, yeah. With, with, with the whole thing with Gruber, it definitely sounds like that's something that you know maybe he was the one that that created the the the, the, the funkiness to the bass lines, and and Geezer just went ahead and just added his little touches to it. Um, but like I said earlier with with on children to see and just the rest of the album there's such a distinct sound of the bass throughout the entire album and you know this is one of those songs that lead that and ronnie's melodies on top of that you know he has this amazing style of singing these great melodies in the chorus and the in the verses that it's it's just on full display on this song so that's that's this song is good Probably not the best song in the album, but it's a very good song. I like this song. I mean, whole I like all of side one, if you want to put it that way. The first four songs. Yeah, it fits in really well. It's yeah, it's not a top ten track or anything like that, but at the same time, it it fits in really well as a whole for the album, which is which is always important. You know, you don't always have to have hit after hit after hit, as long as the songs are good and they fit really well all together. Exactly. All right, that leads us into the title track, track four, and that's Heaven and Hell. Um, this was the second song they worked on. And so by this point, they had actually brought in Jeff Nichols, who was on keyboards. Um, it's a slow building track, but it really shows off Ronnie's vocal talent. And it has just this killer continuing riff that, that continues on through the track. As it gets to the midpoint... It builds up and builds up into this faster section that really just takes you on a ride. And it is an extremely memorable track. Um, a lot of fans will cite this as one of their best, and it they're, for good reason. It It's one of those songs that kind of defies logic in a way in that like a lot of people when they hear these slower kind of plotting tracks they can't get into them but there's something about this that just keeps you going and going and as it builds to the climax like this is this is a killer track and it's it's very epic in in the sense of it's long but takes you to its greatest heights towards the end and it's it's awesome this is a classic song by the Ronnie James Dio version of Black Sabbath. Uh, there's no other way to put it. It's it's another memorable bass line that that it leads the song. It's the main part of the song again. Um, but what really really highlights this song is is when Ronnie's vocals kick in. It, they're soaring, and and Martin Birch's production of his vocals, it it, it almost even though you know the bass is playing in the background, even though you know the drums are playing, it almost feels like his vocals are isolated and that's all you hear. And you hear it crystal clear. You hear the, the, the reverb and the echo on his voice that makes it sound like he's, he's in space in the universe and just singing over everybody. It, it's such a really, really cool production uh, that that's highlighting Ronnie's voice. And 
then you add in Tony's haunting guitar licks and his his the, just the the whole production of this song is so awesome. And Tony's guitar is is kind of understated in this in this song, but it is yet another highlight to it. And then when it kicks in at the at the end, it just really drives right through you, and it's it's just awesome. I mean, it's a shame that Sabbath, you know, when Ozzy returned, no longer played any of these songs. And they got lost, and it was it was great that when the band or Ronnie reunited with Vinny and, and Tony and Geezer, and they created Heaven and Hell, they played these songs because they needed to be played again. Oh, for sure. What's What's funny is there's a track that I'm going to mention when we get to uh, Ozzy on Blizzard of Oz that there is a similarity to it in in what you're saying where the vocals have room to breathe. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not similar in the style of writing, but it's similar in this this aspect of the instrumentation is brought back and it feels like it's all it's doing is enhancing the vocals. Right. And so that's that's kind of what's cool about Heaven and Hell. And as it builds it becomes more about the band as a whole. Exactly. But mm-hmm. but there is there is a lot of it that is just showing that you know Ronnie is an amazing singer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's just such a good track. All right, that takes us to f- track five, which is "Wishing Well." Um, to me, this has always been a sleeper that should get much more recognition in the Sabbath catalog. Um, this track is amazing and it has this back and forth between Ronnie's vocals and Tony's solos. So Tony has this ongoing like jam style solo where Ronnie sings a phrase and then the guitar has this kind of jamming, um, soloing, uh, you know, experimentation almost. It's really, really unique in their catalog. Like there's really nothing like it. Um, it almost has kind of like a rainbow-esque quality. I was going to say that. Um, I was going to say that because that's what Richie Blackmore does with his singers. He he yes. has that trade-off in concert. So Ronnie brought that to Tony. And, and again, like I said, Tony was unleashed on this album. He, yes. he was so free to do whatever he wanted to do with no constraints. Yeah, it, it pushed him to another level. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I really love here, and I have to say, like we haven't really been mentioning much of Bill Ward, but like his contributions on this album can't be denied. And right here on this track, I I you really listen to Bill's drumming, it it fits perfectly along there, uh, along these lines, like where there's kind of this this jam aspect of it, but it's still structured, and it's excellent to me this is such a good track and i've i've always really enjoyed it um it's one that i i think a lot of people will gloss over um but it really deserves more love it's a it's a good way to start off side two because when this album came out you know it was a record it was a record of cassette there was no uh cd at the time uh, it was two years from being released uh internationally um so I'm talking about CDs. Uh, Wishing Well, starting off the second side, is just it's it's a good song. It's not necessarily the fastest song on side two, but it's a good song to, to start off the album, the second side. Um, it, it especially coming off of Heaven and Hell, where it, it's a you know it ends on that slow down fade, and then you you know Wishing Well picks up the pace again, and so you know with, with, between Ronnie's 
melodies, as you were saying, and him trading back and forth with Tony and the solos. I mean, that's 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 the highlight of the song, and so it's a mm-hmm. really cool part of it. And the song, as you definitely, I agree with you in that the song is is um, definitely not as well uh, earned of its of its greatness as as other songs. It definitely needs a little bit more love. All right, that takes us into track six, which is Die Young. Um, so going back to Craig Gruber, in 2009, Gruber changed his tune and what he was saying about his his writing credits and says that he was only involved in writing this track. Um, somehow I really doubt that. I know these guys kind of go back and forth financially in that regard where um, maybe they, they one day they're saying you know, I did this and this and this when then, you know, when they get their, their, uh, what do you call them? Their royalty checks, maybe their tune changes back to what they originally said they would say when they wrote their contract. You know, it's hard to say, but you never know what to believe in a lot of these cases. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, these guys all just talk a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> that's all it is you know they, they sure. want to make themselves seem a little bit better more important whatever it is you know what who knows he could have been there for the whole session beginning mm-hmm. to end the bottom line is is that you know there are always times where they're going to be silent writers there's always times where there's going to be silent musicians that are just there to record a lick and goodbye go home you get paid a thousand dollars and have a nice day you know exactly and and just to, to go off on a tangent real quick, that's exactly what's going on with this kid who was the baby on the Nirvana album. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now he's calling, you know, he's suing the band and anybody and everybody that was associated with the making of the record, you know, and, and, and the, 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 uh, the album design, he's suing them for child pornography and, and, and other shit, you know, lost wages and lost, lost past and future wages. Okay, and you know the guy is a street artist, so there's not a lot of wages in street artists if if you're if you don't make it right away, you know it's it's just a weird thing, and you know he got paid. I mean, well, let's get this back. They got paid two hundred bucks. Okay, the parents to for them mm-hmm. to throw their baby into a pool and the guy take a picture of him. And that was it. What more do you want? No one knew that that was going to sell. That was going to be a diamond record, but that that doesn't matter. Most people don't get paid that much money for an album cover. You know, you get a couple hundred dollars, you get a couple thousand dollars, whatever it is, depending on who the artist is or how much money you're willing to put into an album cover. Okay, I'm pretty sure uh, Hypnosis gets a lot of money for making an album cover, but the guy who did the cover for uh, Armored Saint in the first album probably only got a couple hundred bucks. You know, it happens. Well. It goes down to in multiple interviews. He's he's basically complained that he everybody else has gotten a lot of money and he hasn't. So it's hard to take it seriously that this is child porn. In that he's essentially said, you know, um, you know, I'm just mad because nobody's given me money. Yeah, you, know? you don't. You can't go money. back. Yeah, you can't go back at that point. Like a contract's a contract. You can't just pick and choose what. Yeah, it's what, just you, you know. don't deserve the money. You it took yeah. a picture of you as a as an infant with your willy hanging out in a pool. That's it. That's all you got. You know, <laughs> what do you? You don't deserve a point on the album. You don't deserve royalties. You know, you just you got paid whatever it was you got paid. And going back to Craig Gruber, 
He got paid a certain amount of money to play or record or write, whatever it was. And if he comes up with a 10,000 different excuses as to what happened, you know what? It, it, yeah, his memory changes every time a paycheck gets cashed. <laughs> well, I, I don't even think it's that. Like, a lot of these artists get asked, hey, what was your contribution? We, we know you were part of it, so what did you do? And so they, they start talking. But it's not like they go out of the way. They create a press conference. Hey, I like no. I need I need these guys to come so I can tell my truth. You know, it's not it's not that. It's it these these guys get interviewed and they they you know they remember what they remember. No, and a lot of them were doing a lot of drugs back then. So. <laughs> they, so they remember what they can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, especially Black Sabbath. You know, I mean. T- Tony said he was extremely high for the entire recording of this album. <laughs> so, you never know. But, you know, along the same lines, what you were talking about there is um, Jeff Nichols recently, recently, his estate, if I'm not mistaken, because he passed away, uh, I believe it was last year, um, his estate released a song of Black Sabbaths with... Um, with Ronnie James Dio that wasn't supposed to be released. It was just a, a not nah, you can't even call it a, it was a demo. Yeah, it was a demo. I was going to say bonus track. You can't even call it a bonus track. It was a demo. They released a demo and Tony, you know, they, they released it without the permission of the, of the band or any of the people involved in black Sabbath. And he, Tony was extremely unhappy. Geezer was unhappy because it's unfortunate. It was a song. It was a, a, a demo of a track that just wasn't complete. And they were not mm-hmm. happy with the way it came out. And they wished they would have been asked and they wished there would have been some notice about it. But, you know, and things like that happen. You know, I'm sure I'm sure Craig Gruber's got some demos at home that he's unreleased because he doesn't need to, to see the need to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, anytime you work on a major project like this, there's there's a chance you've got material or something, you know. But regardless, the point is, um, it's just another aspect of music that will always kind of wonder these questions because we just don't know and mm-hmm. it, it adds a level of mystery to it I guess yep um, but going back to the track um, it is it is an awesome track um, in many ways I kind of wish this was the album closer um, the keyboard buildup at the beginning is such a mood setter uh, it's a really fast track for Sabbath in general and it's got some great shredding from Tony. This is what I was referring to when I said some shredding. Um, so it's not the fastest. It's not Ingve Malmsteen doing a million notes per second, but it is a very different dynamic for Tony. Um, this is a track with a lot of attitude, and I really love it. It's hard for me, as we're going to talk about the next two tracks, to say, like, oh, these are the, the best choice for album closers when this is so kind of definitive. I, I liked Die Young, and I hadn't heard it in a really, really long time, and I listened to it again today. And I, I, the thing about this that really stuck out with me was um, how Ronnie went from having this very uh, quiet falsetto chorus the first time that he got to the part where he needed to say Die Young to mm-hmm. the second time they do it, because they only do it, I think, twice, um, he just goes straight into keeping it in, in the same pace and the same vein and the same rock version. You know, he just starts going die young, die young, die young over and over again. And it's just, and it works. And it, it, you almost expect him to 
go back to that quiet part because you know like yeah that's what he did the first time ah nope not the second time and i Mm -hmm. and it's really cool that he does that the first 48 seconds you get the keyboard and the guitar intro you know and it and it just kicks in to the rocker and there's a lot of similarities to this song and neon nights to me there's 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 you know the pace to me is a little similar there's the riffing is a little similar and so you say it could have been an album closer. I, this song or Neon Nights could have been the opener because like with that keyboard intro, it almost seems like it could have been that kind of song that opens an album, right? But they went for the... Th- I think what sets it apart is the lyrical content mm-hmm. and Die Young just seems like this big, grandiose, like, uh, you know, right off into the sunset kind of thing. Right. And I could see know? that being a, an album closer as well. All right, so this takes us into Walk Away, which is track seven. Um, as a whole, it's not a bad track, um, but I really feel like it's oddly placed following Die Young. Um, it's kind of reminiscent of some of the stuff on the last album, which is kind of interesting. So maybe there's a little bit more songwriting from maybe Bill Ward or, or Tony here. Um you know, Bill Ward has kind of a distinctive sound when he writes tracks, and some of that was was definitely on Never Say Die. So I kind of tend to think that this maybe was one of his. Um, it's kind of kind of um, like the the rhythm section is putting on their best effort, and you can tell um, it adds some flavor. But it's to me, it's the weakest track on the album. I agree. It's probably the weakest song in the album. Um, the the thing that really uh, hits home about this song is it, I feel like it, it it's not as you say it, it sounds like it's a leftover. It doesn't fit in. The tuning is different than the rest of the album. Uh, there's it's a little it's a little more like boppy. Yeah, it's 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 in major tuning. It, you know, so it, that that right there automatically says something completely different than the rest of the album, and that's completely different for Black Sabbath. I mean, even you know during those the Eddie Trunk interviews, they all asked him, you know, if there was a song, you know, what I don't know if they asked him what's your least favorite song on the album, but there were, it was something to that effect, and all of them said "Walk Away." They all three had something to say about "Walk Away." If there was a song they could do differently or something about it, you know, the, the lyrics, were they didn't quite really understand Ronnie's lyrics when it came to this song. So there was a lot of things that, that they just really didn't agree with, I guess you could say, when it came to this song. So I could see that. And, and, I, and I see your point, too, where I think this could have probably come after Wishing Well and would have worked just as well there. Probably, yeah. It it would be a better placement. I I almost sometimes I just feel like take that that Slayer approach and just make like a twenty five minute album. <laughs> <laughs> um, like it, like I said, it's not bad. It, it would be fine if it was like a B side or something like that. Right. But yeah. Um. So that takes us to the final track on the album, which is "Lonely Is the Word." So this is one that I didn't really appreciate when I was younger. Um. Over the years, I've really come to like it as a whole. Um, to me, what makes it the most noteworthy, what brings out um, or makes it like fit on this album, I guess, is it shows the amazing vocal talent of Ronnie. It, this, is, this is a song that's driven by the emotion of the way he's singing. And it shows off a lot of slower guitar work. So it, a little bit 
different element from from Tony as well. And you get this really understated, great solo from Tony. Uh, I think it's probably one that's maybe missed by a lot of people because of its placement on the album. You know, we've mentioned that many times in the past where you get to the final track, a lot of people have dropped off, they're not really listening anymore. And there is something really great about this track that I think is just... If maybe you if you took off Walk Away, put this at track six and move Die Young to the end, I think it would be perfect. Um, I think this is a like to me, it's a nine out of ten album as a whole. And it's just it's this track is one that I just really appreciate the more or like as I get older. This this is uh, Black Sabbath going back to their roots. Remember, they were mm-hmm. they were a blues band when they started in the late '60s, and yes. um, this is definitely their version of the blues. And what was, this is probably the most Black Sabbath song on this album. And when I, I would agree. when I say it that way, it's because there's a lot of heavy riffs. It's continuous riff, you know, and and it's that's that's the Black Sabbath style. That's the Tony Iommi style of writing a song. Then you throw in Ronnie in there, and it changes the dynamic, but it changes it for the better, of course. Um, so that that's what is really cool about this song. It's a slow, sludgy blues song. I mean, there's no if ands or about you know, if ands or buts about it. And like you said, the emotional uh, singing by Ronnie is only uh, highlighted by. Tony's very emotional guitar playing throughout the song. Yes. And and basically from the midpoint of this song on, it's a it's a Tony Iommi guitar solo. Um for the most part, and there's a lot of guitar work by Tony on this and and it shows his prowess. I mean, it's 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 an incredible song to listen to and you realize, man, this band is pretty good. This is what they started out with or this is what they started out as and and they still know how to do it. So that that's the mm-hmm. cool thing, and I like the way the song is. Um, it, I think, in a way, it almost feels like it's a it's a um, a like a oh we had this leftover song we need to put this on the album. Walk away and lonely is the word feel that way because they're so different than the rest of the album. But lonely is but I don't I don't necessarily feel like it's a leftover because it doesn't sound like an Aussie track whatsoever. Well, no, but what I say by that is because it's such a, a even though it's not an Ozzy track, it's such a more Black Sabbath style of song that it almost feels like they brought the song in and then they let Ronnie do his vocal thing to it. You know, I mean, it it could be, but right. yeah, we it, don't this know. Would, this would never have worked as a as an Ozzy. No, track, absolutely but, not. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, it it definitely it, it is a Black Sabbath track, though. Right. Yeah, ex- exactly what you're saying. Um, so to close things out with this album, um, it's I would not say this is a return to form. I would say this is a rebirth in the best possible way. The band is heavier and more in sync than they had been in two albums, um, and it shows a lot of new dimensions in songwriting and playing. Um, this is truly their first metal album, and I'm I'm here for every minute of it. Um, maybe maybe not as much for Walk Away. It's not, like I said, it's not a bad track, but it's not, like, its placement in here makes it a 9 over 10 versus if the way I described it to me would make it a 10 over 10 album. Um, So, not just my favorite Sabbath album, but one of my favorite albums of all time, period. 
Okay. I, I mean, I agree. It's, it's, it's one of the best albums out there. And, uh, I agree with you. This is not a return to form whatsoever. This is a brand new band. You know, even though it's three, it's an evolution. Yeah. Three fourths of the, of the original band. There's a whole new, uh, attitude There's a whole new aura to the band. And yeah, Bill Ward would leave the band shortly after the, the release of the album for his own personal reasons. And Vinnie Appice would join the band and Vinnie brought a whole different dynamic too. And he's a great drummer. So that would be the band that would record Mob Rules. So that dynamic, you know, you, you lose Ozzy, you know, you almost lost Geezer and he came back and then you lose Bill. So the, definitely it was a, a rebirth, like you said, because this was a completely different band. Regardless of the fact that there was three-fourths who recorded the album, it was a completely different band. It was something refreshing for these four guys when they put this album together. 100%. All right, so that brings us to the second album, and that is Ozzy Osbourne's 1980 debut release, Blizzard of Oz. Um, it was produced by Ozzy, Randy Rhodes, Bob Daisley, and Lee Kerslake, which is basically the Blizzard of Oz band. It was recorded at Ridge Farm Studio in Rusper, England, and it was released on Jet Records. So if any of you who don't know the story out there, and there's a real brief synopsis of it, Ozzy is fired or quit Black Sabbath, depending on which side of the story you want to you want to hear. He basically is turned into a, a blithering drunk and and uh, drug addict, and he is basically dragged up from you know from the, the depths of where he was at. And he said, "Look, you know," they said, "You need to put a band together." He gets a band together. He brings in Bob Daisley, Lee Kerslake. He does auditions for a guitar player, and he comes across Randy Rhodes, and he is revitalized, um, and he goes and makes this album. It was supposed to be produced by Chris uh, Sangarides, I think it's or Tangarides. Is, it's called. He did a Judas Priest style. He did um, pa- uh, Painkiller, and they just didn't quite get the whole vibe down and Chris couldn't really didn't really record the band the right way and Max Norman was the engineer and he's the one who ended up finishing out the album it's a really good album and we're going to start off with song number one I don't know and contrary to Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell, where they just went for the throat and they, sh- you know, they just basically neck punched you as soon as you put on the album with Neon Knights. This one has an intro. It builds. It has this sound that that builds up to this amazing guitar riff by this amazing guitar player, and goes into this really really kick ass beat and and riff. I, I, it's so hard to describe for me because this is this is my favorite Ozzy song, and this song is so cool to me. And just for the fact that the the way he the, the lyrics are written, where he you know they ask him you know all these different questions, and he just turns around and says, "I don't know." It's just I don't know. There's a cool vibe to this song. I really love the way this song starts the album. 
Yeah, I mean, it's such a fun riff. It's it's as chugging as Crazy Train is. I mean, it's a great opener. Um, the bass line stands out to me. It, it, like, what we mentioned before on the on Heaven and Hell was that every instrument stands out on its own, and it's the exact same here. Yes. You can hear everything that everybody does, and it's always encouraging to me when I listen to an album and I can hear that bass line and it stands out as its own instrument and not just understated and kind of there. You know, it's not, I'm not saying that's a bad mm-hmm. thing. In 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 some albums, that's exactly what it needs to be. But in this style of writing, I feel like it's best how it is. So, I mean, there's like, especially in the slower sections, you hear that 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 bass line, which is just awesome. Um, to me, like in some ways. This comes off as more Sabbath than Sabbath's own effort. <laughs> I I could kind of see that, um, because of the driving riff and and the pounding bass in the background. I could I could totally understand that. But again, that's it's Ozzy, and he's trying to put together a band very similar to what he knows. So I I yep. could totally get that. Um, he's got a really good bass player and he's got an amazing guitar player and he's got a solid, solid drummer. I mean, Lee Kerslake is a completely underrated drummer. Uh, and, and more of his drumming is shown on Diary of a Madman than it is on this album. But he still really, really does play some really good drums on this album and it, and it, it shows how good of a band. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Max Norman, I heard an interview with him the other day and they were talking about this album and he talks about what an amazing chemistry these four guys had when they made this album and, and diary as well. So it's, it's one of those things where basically Ozzy caught lightning in a bottle again, you know, when it's, yeah, to me, it's a tragedy that it didn't continue on with this. I mean, whatever happened behind the scenes where the greed got involved, etc. It's really too bad. Cause this lineup was amazing. Oh yeah. They were, I mean, Bob Daisley is, essentially Ozzy's right hand. He has been throughout most of his early career. I mean, Ozzy's career for, as a solo artist has been since 1980, so we're talking 41 years. Okay, Bob Daisley was involved in 12 of those years, and, and most of it is all the early Ozzy albums. You know, he was involved in almost every album all the way through No More Tears. So that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that tells you that was the best part of Ozzy's career. So Yeah, you know, and he would just cut off his hand from time to time. And then... To spite his face, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one thing I wanted to, tell you, to, to mention, we talked about the production with Martin Birch. Martin Birch at this point in 1980 is a, is a world-class producer. And so the production of, of Heaven and Hell is very, and I don't, want to use the word slick in this particular case because it's not slick but it is very well produced and yes. and so that that shows now on this one Max Norman was a was a, a new engineer to the business he hadn't been involved for a while but he had just started working at Ridge Farm as the house engineer and they brought in Chris Sangarides to to to, to produce the album it did not work he did not record the band well he did the, he was not getting the vibe that the band was putting out where max was and so they fired chris they just basically said max you finish off the album the this album is extremely 
raw, but at the same time, it, it's it's so, as we mentioned before, separate, where all the instruments are so separate, yet it's still, you know, the guitars sound like they're supposed to, the drums sound like they're supposed to, even though they're raw, or much rawer, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, than, than the Heaven and Hell version, or Heaven and Hell album. But it still sounds great. That's the thing. You know, it's timeless. This album is timeless. So, anyhow, let's move on to song number two. This song, everybody knows. It's Crazy Train. All right. Everybody. Anybody who goes to a football game knows this song. Anybody who puts on a... Baseball game. Yeah, baseball game, a hockey game. This song is at every sports event. This song is on the radio all day long. And there's nothing wrong with that because it's an amazingly good song. Uh, Randy's guitar solo in this is absolutely outstanding. Um, just the, the whole thing with this song. I mean, again, like I said, lightning in a bottle. To be able to do that and pull this song out like that and revive someone's career when it was literally in the gutter is, is amazing. Crazy Train isn't just an awesome song. I mean, it's iconic. You're 100% right. It's so overplayed, but at the same time, it's hard to get tired of it. You may you may hear that first part and go, oh, man, I've heard this a million times. And then about three notes in, you're like bobbing your head and yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, jamming out. I mean, they, would, they had a, um, was it a Volvo or a Suzu commercial or something like that where the, where the kids were, were doing the song, you know, I, 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 you know, dun, 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 you know, it was in the backseat of the car. It was so weird that that's how... Mm how in the yeah i forgot about that garbage <laughs> yeah, that that's how in the 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 um there's a certain word the culture it's, it's not even the culture but i forgot what the word is but anyway it's he's the song is such a pop culture iconic song that it's it's in everybody's um you know mind stream or main, i forgot what the word is consciousness the stream of consciousness it's just there everybody knows it so collective contrast yes. is what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I lo- love about this song is that, so Randy would add in these little glissandos and little bends and, and they would add this texture to the music. Just, he knew where to place these things. Cause it wasn't, it was and one thing I don't like about when, when Zach plays with Ozzy is he, he has this style of playing that's very predictable. And so I, I love Black's, Black Label Society. I love what he does in general. But I don't feel like he ha- he he has that same element of just um, breathing the music that Randy did. You know, and I, I think that's the best way of putting it is that just Randy had this he, a natural innate ability to understand what was needed and where and not to be too... too um, obvious about it it would be under the radar but it would just add this professionalism to the music that made it so good you know it wasn't like you know he needed to just throw in a solo with a million notes he did these things that nobody else would do and nobody would think of doing almost like neil peart on the drums when neil would would play the drums like he's he's so amazing um but it's not like he just does a 45-minute drum solo to show off his abilities. He doesn't have to. No. And that's what Randy did on guitar. And um, 
it can't be duplicated. No. So so here's here's a funny thing. Um, there was always you know growing up in 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 the eighties and coming of age at that time, there was always this thing between you know even after his death, who was better, Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes, right? And Eddie Van Halen, if you listen to the first six albums, um, was mostly you know it was it was mostly just him, one track and on one side. You know, uh, the bass in the middle, David's vocals off a little bit to off center. It was just the four of them and the, and the four tracks, essentially. You know, and then you throw Eddie's solo in there. Randy comes in in 1980 and he goes to, 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 to Max, the engineer. He says, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do the guitar solo and then I'm going to double it. Okay, she's going to double it. Now you got a left and a right. And then he would double that. And so he had a like a clean, a distorted, and a, and a, a combination of the two, a third track. And that's what you hear on the headphones. And you have this, it, it created this fullness. And Randy had this crazy ability to duplicate note for note, exactly timed perfectly his guitar solos. Okay, he'd, he'd play the solo, and he knew it, and he would play it again, right? And with a different sound. Sometimes even he would purposely do something a little off just to kind of give it that naturalness. So that, to me, was what separated Randy from Eddie in, in, at that time. And I think Randy was just more natural in general. Yeah. Like Eddie, Eddie is amazing. Don't get me no. wrong. Or was, I should say, I guess. And Eddie had a, a knowledge of his instrument that he knew exactly what he was doing. But what what's different is Randy had this natural flow to him where Eddie was a lot more planned out. His solos would sound like they were on the fly sometimes, but that was very um, planned, orchestrated, because you you would hear his solos multiple times and they would sound exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You would hear him. Uh, you hear the stories about how he would, th- you know, go through all the recordings and remove all of the 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 string sounds of when he was recording and his finger slides. He was much more manufactured in his own capacity. Like he he wanted things to be so. Perfect. Oh, he was a he Whereas, was a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. Whereas Randy had this natural flow to him, and I think that's really what sets them apart. And both things are admirable and great. So oh, no. I don't, I don't. Yeah, I mean, you can have that argument of who's better. To me, oh, I'm not taking anything I away from love, Eddie because Eddie, the 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 sheer. I'm not saying you. Right. I'm saying the the the, the public. The, the sheer knowledge uh, that Eddie has of of his instrument. You know, inside and out, backwards and, and, and forward is is bar none. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. no one that can even touch that. But the Randy was besides being uh, an, a consummate professional, he he knew what he wanted out of his sound, and that's that's another thing that's really astonishing about Randy. Just the way that he was able to produce that sound. So one thing I forgot to mention about I don't know is that the main riff on I don't know is this chugging guitar. Right, but uh, guitar riff, you know, dan, digga, 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 dan. But the th- the the riff changes 
in the second half, in a, it, the song goes in thirds, right? Because it, it's just a constant digga 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 that. But in the second time he plays it, he it, it's there's a little like a, a hop, skip, and a jump. It's like a digga 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 digga. Dig, dig, I forgot how it goes, but it's a it's a chug, but not a a rhythm, more like a jump, like a step, and it's so so minute and so quick but it's different than the first time he plays it and then the third time he goes into like an open like what you like about it where he just plays this little tiny lick to go into to finish that part of the 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 court the the riff well that's what i was getting at is he had these little subtleties that kept things interesting yeah so and i i have one more note it's it's just a stupid thing that i i have to say about crazy train so for the longest time when I was young, I and I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet access to just look up this stuff. I always, and, and I knew it had to be something different, but I always heard the lyric as, I wrestled with crocodiles who make their own rules. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's what I heard for years until I finally, you know, went out and purchased the album and, you know, looked, <laughs> looked at what the lyrics actually were. <laughs> well, I, I didn't wrestle with crocodiles. I, there was, there, it was, it's funny because there's so many songs where those things like that happen. And then you even told mm-hmm. me about one song that uh, uh, Frankenstein. No, the, the, the whole thing with um, it's my yeah, life. it's my life. Like Frankenstein, right. I did it exactly, and so that's <laughs> the way I sing it. So go figure. <laughs> that's funny. All right, so um, coming out of Crazy Train, which is this iconic song, you get to this slow ballad song called "Goodbye to Romance." Um, this kind of shows off Ozzy's vocals. Um, there's, it, it's really, really stripped down song. Um, it's just the four of those guys on there. Um, it is the, the power ballad before the power ballad was famous. Um, but at the same time, it, it's, it's a sweet, sweet song and Ozzy's played it live uh, or in back in the early days, and you know, had the whole the whole crowd swaying back and forth. It's a cool song. Um, as as a as ballads go, it's not like Home Sweet Home or anything like that. But it's a, it's a, it's a good song. It's a sweet song. That's you know, and and of course, Randy is outstanding when when it comes to his playing. But it's just a very simple song to me. Yeah, I, I really like it. I I mean, I think it's it's one of um, Ozzy's staples you know it's it's one of those songs that when i listen to this album um i definitely want to hear it you know um what what i was talking about earlier when we were or what you were kind of mentioning i guess with heaven and hell and what i was saying is i would reference that back to another track it's this one um so very different song from heaven and hell but there is a similarity in that the the music is kind of pulled back and restrained to a degree to allow Ozzy to shine. You know, this, there's a, a short and sweet solo from, from Randy, and it does exactly what it needs to do. And and again, Randy's doing this these subtle th- things with the guitar that add interest and keep you occupied. It's not repetitive. It has the same rhythm throughout, but... He does these things again that make it very interesting, and 
allows for the the whole album to always keep your attention, which is what I think is the understated talent of Randy Rhodes. Um, and the synth keyboard outro, it's very interesting to me because it's somehow dated in its time period, but at the same time, it's kind of this eternally fresh sound that if it, the song is, I guess, just so good that it doesn't matter that, you know, synth keyboards are not really used anymore. Um, it, it still keeps it like it iconic in its own way. Oh you know? yeah. I mean, it, it there's, there's a, there's definitely a dates to song, but at the same time, there's something different about it. So, That's not always a bad thing. No, not at all. You know, sometimes, you know, yeah, you want to hear a song that, that, you think is new and it's not that's mm-hmm. that's great but at the same time you a, it has a nostalgia right, to it a song know? that dates itself brings the 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 listener back in time and that's never a bad thing you know is it dated because it's a trend or is it dated because of you know it just it sounds like the time period, you know. The, there there are differences. Right, you know, there's exactly. some songs that it's not a trend. That sound that's for sure. Exactly, it's not a trend. It, it is very unique and it's very like Ozzy did something very different with this album. Ozzy and his band, I should say, because it wasn't just him. I mean, obviously, it's it's a it's a full band effort, and that can't be denied. No, absolutely not. The the next song is D, and that is the the highlight of the album for me in in terms of Randy Rhodes. Um, Randy does this acoustic song uh, solo, no words, no nothing. It's just him picking away at a guitar, and I love this song. When I was younger, and I listened to this song before the tribute album came out with Ozzy um I so badly wanted to hear something else from Randy I would listen to the song over and over again I just loved this song and and I I I, my desire was I needed to hear more than just these two albums from Randy Rhodes I I desired to hear a live recording I just to to hear guitar solo all I had in guitar solo was the end of a a solo in suicide solution from his live uh, EP that faded out it didn't even play the whole solo and then this thing came in in the the sweetness behind this because this is for his mom it's outstanding and then when the tribute album came out and they found more uh cuts and more more takes from him trying to do this it it was incredible to the point where i when i recorded i would put stuff in my albums you know on tape so i could listen to them in my car because i couldn't stand the way a regular cassette sounded you know i had to do my own mastering i would put the tribute version and then as it faded out, I would put in this final version that came out. And so it would extend it. So instead of one minute, now i got two, two and a half minutes of Randy Rose playing acoustic guitar. I love this song. No, I, I completely understand. I mean, it, it really is um, Randy's mom, moment to shine. Um, you know, much like Eddie, we, you know, we referenced earlier. Um, you know, Eddie would put his 
solos on there and I'm remembering Cathedral and some of these other ones it was the same kind of thing where it showcased that the the guitarist but at the same time uh, there's so much emotion here you know whereas Eddie's were so planned out like we mentioned before this is this is a different like this is very bluesy and um, you know shows uh, a heartfeltness to it you know mm-hmm. and um Randy could just do so much with so little because this is this is a minute long solo, but it's just it. There's so much meaning and feeling in it. So it's it, to me, it's not my my highlight for Randy on the album. But I, I can I can totally understand why it would be. Um, there's one other moment in here that I that for me, I really love more. But this is it's an incredible minute <laughs> right I, I when i say that say the highlight is because he's this is his moment to shine where he shines in every song you know but well i mean it, it, music affects everybody differently right, right? Mm-hmm. so it, this this may be that that moment for you where you feel you know this is this is what stood out to you as as that you know that thing that really said randy it was absolutely incredible Whereas, you know, for somebody else, it might be another thing. It might be hearing, you know, Crazy Train or something. But all that we, you know, can glean from this is that across the board, everybody knows Randy is amazing. Right. Exactly. All right. So coming out of D and and the sweetness and the silence and the quietness of that song, we go into Suicide Solution. Now, Suicide Solution is... It, to me, it's one of the highlights of this album. It's a great, great song, uh, killer riff. Um, you know, Ozzy's singing with with a lot of clarity. It's weird because when you you sit there and you say to yourself, Ozzy's this drunk, drug addicted maniac, trying to tell you not to die by drinking and, <laughs> and drugs, and it's like there's a contradiction in terms there. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's. At the same time, he, he means it. You know, he doesn't want anybody to die because of that. Well, I mean, keep in mind also that he didn't write the lyrics. No, so. of course not. <laughs> but it, it, it's he's the one who has to represent them. You know, absolutely. And so, and 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 it's also one of those things where Bob is is to me, Bob always wrote through Ozzy because he mm-hmm. knew that he wasn't singing to himself. So he had he had to encapsulate who the person was that he was writing these lyrics for. And it's very similar to what 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 uh, Geezer had to do for Ozzy because Geezer was the one who wrote the lyrics in in Black Sabbath during the Ozzy years. So, um, yeah. So Bob Bob wrote the lyrics, but it was always in in the the vein of Ozzy singing. But it's a cool song. I love the song. I mean, it's this is, live version was the opportunity for Randy to go pull his guitar, you know, to put on a guitar solo. So it always came across really great. I love the. Just a, I don't know. The, 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 I love this riff a lot. I, I, this is one of my favorite Ozzy songs. So, what what are your feelings on it? I mean, I think it's a really good one. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely an iconic sh- song, and um, I'm I'm sure a lot of you know that this is written about the death of Bon Scott. Um, there is one really funny quote that I found when I was doing some research about it was from Don Arden, who is. Uh, their former manager and Sharon Osborne's father. Uh, and this is in regard to how they were being sued um, 
you know, at the time, like there was a kid who who committed suicide and, and essentially blamed the parents blamed it on this song. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into much detail on that, but you can look it up, you know, on your own time. But um, the the quote was hilarious to me. He says, to, to be perfectly honest, I would be doubtful as to whether Mr. Osborne knew the meaning of the lyrics, if there was any meaning, because his command of the English language is minimal. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see uh, his feelings on Ozzy. You know, Don, Don's the one who signed him to Jet Records, <laughs> you know, but it's it's funny because apparently there was a falling out. So <laughs> um, anyway, um, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> no, it is. It is. You know, Suicide Solution ends side one of the record, uh, comes in, uh, side two is started with song six or song one of side two, Mr. Crowley with the classic uh, keyboard intro, um, the haunting, you know, uh, uh, organ sound that, 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 that Mr. Crowley has. It's great, great intro. I love it. Um, the song, a little bit about Aleister Crowley in there, that there's, there's that, that, kind of almost evilness to it but one thing about this song that I like a lot is how Randy did the guitar solos um, this is my favorite Randy Rose guitar solo on it on any of the songs that he's done um, as far as you know one of the rockers because obviously D is a different type of song but the the fact that he was able to shred on in one you know, phrase of the song and then do this nice little melodic solo in another part of the song. It, it tells you the range and, and the, the, the mental side of how Randy would approach these songs. And that that's what makes this song amazing. Um, yeah, I 100% agree. This is the one I was talking about when I say this is my highlight for Randy. Um, there's two solos on this track that are just absolutely killer. Um, the harmony riff at the end is one of the things that makes it so good. Um, and the, the guitar work in general, um, man, it's just fantastic on this track. I love the cheesy kind of evil intro keyboard intro. Like it just reminds me of those old horror, black and white horror films. And even into like the, the, the eighties when the, like the hammer film started with, you know, the, the, their version of Dracula and the mummy and all that stuff. Um, it, it takes me into that. And that's something that would continue in, in Ozzy's writing as it, it went along like bark of the moon and those kind of things. There was this kind of cheesiness, like a, um, almost a stage persona, you know, like along the lines of, uh, Alice Cooper to a degree that he would integrate in some of this. And, um, this is one of the like the first tracks that really capitalized on that, and I just it I love this track. No, oh, it's one of my favorite Ozzy songs. Um, it was one that I kind of had to leave off when we talked about Ozzy a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I love Mr. Crowley, and and again, yeah, the, the guitar solos that Randy did were outstanding, and you know, like you said, it it, it definitely shows his. It, it's a highlight. Even though I mentioned D being the highlight for me, this, you know, as as far as the rockers are concerned, this was the highlight for me in terms of Randy's guitar solos. 
Um, next up is the song called No Bone Movies. Um, I would have to say, for me, this is probably my least favorite song on the album. But at the same time, it's still a cool rocker. It's got a catchy chorus. It's It's got a cool riff. Um, but it's just, there's something about it that just I don't connect with in this song. Um, as good as it may or may not be to, to someone else that's listening to it, I just never got into this song. You know, you know, you're listening to the album and you, you sing along to it because you know the song because you've heard it a bunch of times. But I don't necessarily have to hear it, you know, for me to enjoy the album. No, that's fair enough. Um, I, I do like it, but again, it's it's a little bit more straightforward. You know, it's a little, it's like a head bobber kind of happier toned track. Um, the riffs, you know, fun and simple, but it's not my favorite. I think it's placed exactly where it should be. You know, it's it's not out of place. Um, but it's it, it's kind of you know to me it's like walk away in a way. You know where it's right. It's not really necessary. It would be fine as a, like a a B side or something like that. But yeah, right. Exactly. Take now, it or leave it. for me. If if you rem- if if anyone wants to go back to one of the b- earlier episodes that we did, and one of the rusty metals that I pulled out was the Ozzy Osbourne live EP that had Suicide Solution, and I believe Mr. Crowley on it, and it also had a song called You Said It All, which was recorded after the album. It was recorded live um, because they were trying to re- they were going to release. Goodbye to Romance is a single, but they changed their mind and they asked the band to write a new song. The song, the song was "You Said It All." There's a, there's a couple of similarities to me now. No Bone Movies is a little bit quicker than "You Said It All," but there's something about the riff and the way the riff goes from one riff to another riff that has very similar style to "You Said It All." between those two songs. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with You Said It All, if you're streaming and you can listen to Spotify or any of the other streaming formats, you can listen to it because it was this song, You Said It All, was just released on the 40th anniversary of, of the Blizzard of Oz album as one of the, the uh, extra bonus tracks. So you could check that out. All right, that brings us to Revelation Mother Earth. And we're going to combine these two songs because they basically are one song split into two, um, or two songs combined into one, if you want, however you want to look at it, the way the way it is, because it doesn't stop. Um, Revelation Mother Earth being a slow song, a, a kind of about the the destruction of Earth, if you want to put it that way, you know, the, the, the things, climate change is, is what we call it now. <laughs> and then it goes into Steal Away the Night, which is a really cool rocker to end the album. So you have this really slow song that literally just kicks into this other song, Steal Away the Night, that's just up-tempo. It's a great way to end the album. Those two songs combined, uh, there, there's a, a weird dichotomy that plays off of each other because one's slow and one's fast. What are, what are your thoughts on that one? So, Revelation to me is, um, you know, it's one of those tracks that it's, yeah, it's an intro, but it's also its own track in a way. But it does, the ending builds up right into the the intro to Steal Away. Um, so, you know, it's it's fine. It's It's got jam elements. It's experimental 
whatever. I think it's a little bit overblown and too long. Um, but it, it's fine for what it is. Um, you know, it's effects and synth heavy and, you know, it's, it's got this, um, build up at the end. That's actually really cool though. Um, and then steal away, you know, parentheses, the night, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it, the opening this track is just really good. I love it. Um, it feels like a closer. It feels like it should be the end of the album. Um, you know, it's, it's got some really great moments of, on the bass from Bob Daisley, you know, in, in a way it's kind of ahead of its time because there's not a lot of songs in 1980 that sound like this, you know, there's, there's stuff that would follow that sounded like it, but it, it's got this kind of, um, you know, pacing that bands that like, um, Motley Crue would kind of pick up on and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's not in the same vein vocally or anything like that. It still feels like an Aussie song, but I feel like it's a predecessor to a lot of things that would come along afterward. And it's, it's, it's a really good track. I, I like the track a lot. I mean, I like steal away. It, it definitely has, you know, it's a killer riff. Um, it's definitely probably the fastest song in the album. Um, but that's not saying a lot because Ozzy's never been a, a, someone who plays really, really fast songs. I mean, Bark at the Moon is probably one of the faster songs that he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one thing I like about the song, too, is that you can see how it can lend itself into what they do in concert where it goes into the drum solo. Um, so there's there's certain things about this song. You know, it could, it could have easily led into a guitar solo. It leads into the drum solo, what they did with, you know, with, with Tommy and Lee and all that stuff. So it's it's pretty, and I say to, Tommy and Lee, Tommy Aldridge <laughs> later on and Lee Kerslake at the beginning. So, <laughs> I knew what you meant, but it sounded funny. Right, exactly. So... You know, it, it was it's a it's a cool song. It plays off well in concert. It and it, it definitely is a great way to end the album. So now that we've finished the album, the, the thing the, the takeaway I get from this is that you have this this person in Ozzy Osbourne who has been revitalized. Um he's got himself a new band. Um he's not yet the Ozzy that we all know. He is the Ozzy who was the singer for Black Sabbath that was that was let go. Uh, at this moment, he is not the crazy man that people, you know, would eventually you know love him to be. I guess you could put it that way. Um, so he is just someone who's trying to find himself all over again. And he comes out with this album. It's a, it's amazing that this band clicks so well in such a short period of time. So that that in and of itself is 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 outstanding. You know, you have a band like Black Sabbath who clicked with Ronnie. You have Ozzy who's clicking with this new band. These two albums came out five months apart. Heaven and Hell was the first one. And that was a very dis- is, uh, instinctly designed to be that way. They were rushing to get this album out because they had to have it out before Ozzy put out his. That was that was basically the mantra. We have to get ours out first, and they did, and they were way ahead of that because they started a year earlier in '79, you know, to get the album out. Ozzy did not start that early. He was still trying to drag himself out of the gutter, but he did. Um, I don't know. I there's there's so many. 
good things about both albums. It's hard to say which one's better, but I do have my favorite. What 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 are your thoughts on the two albums? Um, you know, for me, I I'm always going to have to go with Heaven and Hell. Um, for me as a big, you know, we've talked about this in the past. I'm a big Black Sabbath fan, and for a band to come out of the wreckage that they went through and put out such a good product. And both of them did the same thing. Obviously Ozzy had to do it somewhat solo. Um, but he, he found good people that really helped him in his regard. Um, but what, what to me, Ozzy did was a a lot of the, the, uh, the sound is still kind of what he did in black Sabbath. And I think the band, that was working with him kind of catered that to him. Um, that being said, Randy Rhodes, obviously an amazing guitarist, his, you know, his subtlety in the way he played, uh, is just mind blowing. And it would only even get better with the next album in his playing. I, I feel, even though I think there's some better songs on the first album and as a whole, um, it's, it's hard to say because, because this was, ba- you know, musicians that were holding on and trying to do something, and they did something absolutely great out of the ashes of, you know, both their careers. Ronnie coming out of Rainbow and not being satisfied what he was doing, and Sabbath, uh, you know, almost completely falling apart and, and putting t- together just something so good. I think that was kind of the pinnacle of their career with Ronnie though. Whereas I think the, the Randy era, I think got even better with the next album and who knows what would have happened after had he not passed away. So I think to me, if we were maybe comparing, um, you know, heaven and hell to diary of madman, it might be a different in my mind, but I think in this instance, and we've gone back to this many times before is where sometimes when a band puts out their first album, they don't quite have all the pieces there. And I'm not saying that they weren't amazing together, their first effort, but I think they understood their role with Ozzy better on the second one, whereas Sabbath clicked in a different way. And I just think it's a little bit better for me. Totally understand and that. And it's more metal. yeah that that is true it is heavier in that regards um for me i'm a huge randy rhodes fan so for me i'm gonna pick blizzard of oz um just because of the iconicness of of crazy train because of mr crowley suicide solution and i don't know those four songs are just staples for me and um as much as I love Heaven and Hell and, and Side One is is absolutely, you know, uh, the most amazing probably f- first four songs on a record out there, I just really, really, there's something I enjoy about the Blizzard of Oz album from front to back. Even though the Side Two is a, is a lot weaker, um, but there's something still there to enjoy. So for me, Blizzard of Oz is, is that album. It, to me, it, it comes across that way. And, and Randy's playing is just outstanding. And and to me, I think this is one of those instances where I don't think there's a wrong answer. 
you know, because both are such amazing albums. You know, but I'd someone's got to win. I'd fight you more <laughs> on other ones, but I gotta say, like this is this is one where I don't think you can choose a wrong choice. No, I, I absolutely not. You know, both of them are iconic albums. Both of them are staples, and you know, you you're not going to go wrong with either album. So they're both great. All right, well, that brings us to. Uh, a very unique, I should say, unique big four this week. It is Ronnie James Dio's Black Sabbath songs, the big four of those. Um, you know, that's a very, very specific one because, you know, we could have said Ozzy's and he's got a whole, you know, huge career of Black Sabbath songs to pick from. But Ronnie's was very small. Uh, technically, what, three albums? Technically right. three. I mean, you, Technically three. you could essentially throw in their Heaven and Hell album, um, The Devil That You Know, but we're not for this exercise. We're not. So um, last week, uh, I had you go first because I wanted you to hear and be surprised with the songs that I picked for, uh, for Bottom. So this week, I'm going to go ahead and go first. Okay. All right. All right. So my big four, Ronnie James Dio. Black Sabbath songs. Number four, Time Machine, the Wayne's World version. Uh, and I know there's a big distinction between the Wayne's World version and the album version. And the Wayne's World version is much heavier. It's less slick. I like that kind of production much better than that slick production. And so with that alone right there, that's my number four song. It's a killer it's, riff on that. It's a massively different version. If it, And if you haven't heard both, go out there and listen to both and you'll see exactly why it's so much better. It's very similar to how Mob Rules had two different versions, the, the, the heavy metal movie version and then the album version. Uh, I In that particular case, I kind of side with the album version. Album version better, better for sure. You know, I think that there was something very demo about the uh, uh, the version that showed up on heavy metal. And I, I think they ha- it was a rushed thing. But regardless, number three, talking about the Mob Rules. Um, and we're talking about the album version. So... That just coming out of that was it E fifty one fifty you know little mm-hmm. uh, kind of keyboardy weird kind of sounding song and a very electronic sounding. Uh, this song just just slaps you in the face and and just tramples right over you. It's such a killer song. Um, you know the mob rules. The mob walked right over you and and, and killed you because this song is so freaking good. <laughs> I, I love this song. Uh, number two for me. Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath songs is Heaven and Hell uh, off the Heaven and Hell album. Um, just as as we talked about it earlier, we don't have to go over it again. It, it's just a, such a cool song uh, all by itself. But for me, my number one Ronnie James Dio Sabbath song is Children of the Sea. There's just that song gives me goosebumps. Um, the acapellaness, the falsetto that he sings with. In there, and I and I say acapellaness because again, like I said, the production is such that it almost feels like he's singing without any accompaniment. But in reality, it's all there. Um, that's how good the production is on this. Uh, that song is just, you know, that it, it, there's a melancholiness to it. Um, the bass line is so so potent because it's so separate from everything. Uh, I love this song, you know, and. That is my favorite Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath song. 
Those are all good choices, and I'm glad you picked one of them because I didn't, and I love the song, and that's Time Machine because it didn't quite make my big four this time. Um, you know, a lot of this is always based on how you feel at the moment. It's hard to always just have your favorite, but sometimes they're they're locked in place, and um, I kind of feel that way about this one where these these are pretty consistently my big four. Um, my number four is Die Young. We talked about it earlier. I've always loved that song. Again, I kind of wish it was the album closer, but, um, you know, I think its placement is fine in general, but I, I just love this track and the lyrical content. And I remember listening to it in my car, you know, when I first started driving and just that, like that freedom of, of being on the road and kind of listening to it. And, you know, it's, it's about like you know just living life to the fullest you know and so i i kind of feel that way um my number three is wishing well off of heaven and hell i mentioned before i just absolutely love the interplay between uh ronnie and tony on this one it's always to me been one of those tracks that i just wish more people would listen to it and really kind of understand how how well done it is um my number two is the mob rules you had it on yours is i believe number three um i remember when i first heard this song and just how much ass it kicked i mean just i I kept listening to it over and over and over again because it was so good and then i also remember playing spider-man on the super nintendo and facing off against one of the bosses and a complete ripoff of this song was in the game. And I remember continuing, like trying to play that portion over and over again, just to hear the song in the game it was so cool. But <laughs> I don't think uh, they were ever, you know, alerted to the fact that a complete exact ripoff, including the solo was in that game. Wow. Um, and my number one is heaven and hell. And, I think for good reason. It's it's a lot of people's favorite Sabbath song. It's one of those songs that just it builds and builds and builds and then just gets better and better until the end and it just doesn't stop. And for a song to be that slow and somewhat repetitive and still just make you pay attention, that's really impressive. And it's just such a good track. Shows off Ronnie's ability and that's for me it's got to be number one you can't go wrong with that list that's for sure um you know it was it was a toss-up between heaven and hell and children of the sea for me but when i when i listened to it to it today i was like yeah children of the sea by you know for me hands down so um it's it's amazing that ronnie has been gone for 10 years over 10 years i think so it's 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 a shame he's not out there to be able to continue to do his thing but you know, God bless Ronnie. Rest in peace. Um, this was a, a tribute to you in, in a way. That is our big four Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath songs. And this brings us to the end of today's episode. As a reminder, you can find us and all of our previous episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and every podcast platform. So don't forget to click the subscribe button. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check out our playlist from our Greatest Hits episodes. 
Make sure to tune in to the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. Thank <laughs> you.